This sermon is brought to you by Buford Road Baptist Church. The speaker today is Pastor Tony Cahoot. All right, let's get to work tonight. In Revelation chapter 1, I'm going to call your attention to verse number 17 again, where we left off last week. John is writing, and he says this in verse 17, And when I saw him, John is talking about Jesus. I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Now, if I were to read that verse again, this is how I would read it, and this is the way that I want to read it, and I want to make a comment about it. Because sometimes you can read scriptures and just breeze through it, and we lose some of the most significant uh, aspects and spiritual truths if we just read it. But let me reread it and read it the way that I want to emphasize it tonight. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me. Now, what's so significant about that? We'll talk about it in just a minute. Now, let's look at this. Last Wednesday night, I was describing to you the feeling that John had after 60 years of watching Jesus ascend. It was his last vision. It was his last visual experience of Jesus, watching him ascend to the Father. I don't want to go into the message of the angels tonight, but you know the story. And as John watches him go, he leaves out of their sight. Think about this, because when John is writing, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. I, I ended last Wednesday night was when he turned around and he saw Jesus. He didn't run to embrace him, fist bump him, high five. He fell at his feet as if he was dead. Now, this guy, John, is the one who had laid his head on the bosom of Jesus in the upper room. I don't want you to forget how close this relationship was. This is the one who was standing at the foot of the cross. If you remember, all of the other disciples had forsaken him. The, the scripture says even in Gethsemane, John left for a moment too. I mean, they were all petrified. They were scared out of their mind. When Judas was leading those Roman centurions into the garden of Gethsemane, the scripture says they all fled. Somebody get that real quick. That's not my phone, is it? Yeah, no. That's not. You know, that happened one time. And I'm, I'm thinking, this, this person knows I'm in the pulpit right now. It's church time. It's not my phone. All right, so... It takes me a while to get it back in gear because it's really serious and I, I'm coming out of a, a funny mode here. But so, okay, John, he laid his head on the bosom of Jesus. You think about the experience I was talking about when John and all of them let, 
fled Gethsemane. Now, if you think about the story, John did come back. And he was the only one that really got near him. Peter's outside weeping bitterly and the, the, the crowd is in hysterics. Okay, so we go through all of those crucifixion ordeals. And so now John is at the foot of the cross and Jesus commits his mother to John's keeping, not to James, his brother, but to John. So John is having this, this Pilate's judgment hall experience with Jesus. He's having this upper room experience with Jesus. He's, he's at the foot of the cross. At the end of the crucifixion, he takes Mary to his own home. And so there was a bond there. There was a, a, a huge, and I'm not saying that these other disciples did not love the Lord very affectionately. They did. They most certainly did. But John is the one whom is referred to as the disciple that Jesus loved. And I don't want to, to minimize his love for the others. You remember the great story he had with Simon Peter, Peter, lovest thou me? And so he, he loved all of these guys. All right, so now John is on Patmos. He's probably 85 years old, somewhere close to that nature right now. And he, he falls down after he, he turns around and he sees the Lord Jesus as our high priest. He falls down at his feet as he was dead. Now, if, here's what I want to say before I get to the right hand thing. Jesus is in the process of showing him all of this uncomprehendable revelation. And he's telling him, John, what you see, write it in a book, write it down. Don't miss anything. And think about this. John was exposed to the vision of the walls of Jasper, the gates of Pearl. He was exposed to the splendors of heaven, the crystal sea. And, and he was able, almost as if God equipped him with spiritual shock absorbers as God was electrifying his, his soul with this incredible vision. He was able to see it. And he was able to take his pen. He was able to write. When he heard this voice behind him, he fell down. He looked at Jesus and it was so bright, so overwhelming, he could not, he could not contain it. And he fell down and he thought he was going to die. Before I get to the right hand thing, I want to get one more scripture in here for you. Because in my study, I found that the prophet Daniel had a similar experience as John. And I want you to see these verses. They're worth getting on the screen as we parallel them here tonight with this encounter on Patmos. In Daniel chapter 10, these are significant verses. And so if you are accustomed to write to writing in your Bible, I would encourage you to write right here beside verse number 17, this passage, Daniel chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. 
I'm going to read these scriptures for you. The Bible says, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel whose name was called Belshazzar, and the thing was true, but the time appointed was long, and he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. And in the four and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hadeko. All right, now watch this carefully now. Then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Euphrates. His body was also like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished, polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. Now, are you putting these dots together here? And I, Daniel alone, saw the vision. For the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quakening fell upon them so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore, I was left alone and saw this great vision. And there remained, look at this. This is important. This is huge. There remained no strength in me, for my calmness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the voice of his words. And when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face and my face toward the ground. And behold, look at this. This, I tell you what, folks, this gives me a chill. And the hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and, my, and upon the palms of my hands. So, I realize this requires great study, long study, deep study. When you think about the prophet Daniel and you think about John, the, the circumstances that they are experiencing are similar. Daniel caught a vision of the Lord. John caught a vision of the Lord. Both of these men give a very similar description of the Lord, especially when they get to the description of the eyes of the Lord. But then Daniel says this. He doesn't say, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. He said, I fell to my feet. He said, I fell with my face toward the ground. And he's, this is what he said. He said, I had no strength. It was completely gone. So in other words, he's saying, I fell to the ground as if I were dead. He had no strength. John is saying, 
in the vision as well. He said, I fell at his feet as if I were going to die. He said, I fell at his feet as dead. Daniel says, while I was in this incapacitated state, he touched me. John is saying, while I fell at his feet as dead, he came and put his right hand on me. John is saying, he touched me. Now, I don't know. I don't know if it's the air conditioning or what's going on up here, but I'm getting a chill. And, and I want you to see this. Because... In John's case, and we go back to Revelation, when, when Jesus is putting his right hand upon him, the right hand typically testifies of great power and favor. A lot of times, and, you, and, and most of the time, I don't get an opportunity to say it every time someone new comes into the fellowship of our church because I, I focus predominantly on what, what brings a person into the, the fellowship, the fold, the, the church membership, and that is somebody has to be saved and scripturally baptized. But normally when I have people standing down here and I say, now if you're rejoicing at Brother Smith or Jones coming into the fellowship of our church. What we are doing as a church, we are extending to them the right hand of fellowship. That's what we're doing. Somebody comes into, they're saved. They've been scripturally baptized. They come forward. They want to be part of the church, body, family here. In this local New Testament church, we extend to them the right hand of fellowship. Join us. That's what we're saying. But there's a scripture for that. This right hand thing was pretty, pretty interesting to me. I want you to see this in Galatians chapter 2 and verse number 9. This is, this is significant. If I have, yes, I think this is the right verse. Now look at it. When James... Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me. They gave to me and Barnabas, look at this, the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. So Paul is testifying that they were they, they were given the approval. They were given uh, the confidence from these pillars of the faith that what they were embarking on to do was significant and they had given their support to this endeavor and they signified it, the word said, by the right hand of fellowship. Now, I want you to see something interesting here because Daniel says that when he fell without any strength in his body, he felt the Lord touched him. 
John is saying that when he fell at his feet as though he were dead, Jesus put his right hand, this is important, the right hand, it was like the right hand of fellowship. But much more than that, I want you to see and know and be remembering in this part of the study tonight that I would say 99.9% of the time when Jesus was in his earthly ministry and he was going about healing people, doing God's work among the people, 99.9% of the time when he healed somebody, he touched them. He put his hands on them. I want to give you three real quick instances. In Mark chapter 1, verse number 41, let's look at this scripture here. And I want you to get this now because this is significant. Daniel felt the touch when he had no strength in his, in his body. John felt the touch when Jesus touched him on his, with his right hand. Mark 141, and Jesus moved with compassion. Look at this. Put forth his hand and touched him. This is talking about the leper. It touched him and saith unto him, I will be thou clean. So when Jesus was healing the leper man, he touched this individual. In Matthew chapter 8 and verse number 3, the word says this, and Jesus put forth his hand and touched him saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. I want to give you another instance. Matthew chapter eight, verse 15. And he touched her hand and the fever left her and she arose and ministered unto them. Now look at that very carefully. This is, this is the significance of it. The Lord touched Daniel when there was no strength in his body. And all in the earthly ministry of Jesus, when he was doing something significant in someone's life who needed a touch, who needed a healing, he physically literally did that. He touched them. He touched Daniel, he touched the sick, and then John. On Patmos, when he's falling at his feet as dead, he touched him with his right hand, signifying power, authority, and fellowship. But nevertheless, he was working with this touch. And this is what I want you to see. Because when John turns to see Jesus, Jesus is standing there, as our high priest in a glorified fashion. The light of his glory was so bright, John couldn't contain it. He couldn't look at him for two seconds. The brightness of that light sent John breathless to the ground. And Jesus touched him. This is what I want you to see. That the same Jesus, this man who is standing there now with this priestly garment on, the brightness of God's glory radiating from him. 
He is still the same compassionate, life-giving, touching Savior. He's not working in any other mode, means, or fashion. He touched Daniel. He touched the multitude. He touched John. Yet standing there as our high priest with those garments on, it was the same. I'm talking about the same kind and compassionate heart that we read about in the Gospels of Jesus, who is now standing with this golden girdle upon him, is really still the same. That was precious to me. Jesus now is telling John, he said, don't fear. You're not going to die. I've got a message for you. The same heart, the same hand. I'm talking about this hand here that John is writing about that holds the seven stars. In the brightness of God's glory, the same nail-scarred hand was now telling him not to fear. It was still extended in love and invitation as it was so freely extended to doubting Thomas, those same nail-scarred hands. These eyes now that we read here in the scripture that were as a flaming fire, they were the same eyes that wept over Jerusalem. The same feet that burned as John recorded as molten brass in a furnace, they were the same feet who walked in the weary ways of the world that were nailed to the cross. And Jesus is saying to him in the same compassionate way, he is saying, fear not. You know, when I got to thinking about this part, John falling at his feet is dead. Jesus speaking the words, fear not. The simple truth in that is this, you and I will never ever have to fear if we are determined to stay at the feet of Jesus. That's where we find the peace. Now, look what the Lord does here. At the end of verse number 17, the Lord begins to describe himself. He said this, fear not, I am the first and the last. Now, this is talking about his pre-existence. The Lord Jesus was not created He has always been. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have always been. And Jesus now, who is speaking these words to John, fear not. He's standing now, we've already mentioned this, as our great high priest, the King of Kings. In fact, he's standing there in the same context as the order of Melchizedek. Way back in our Bible studies, Maybe a year or two ago, we talked about Melchizedek. But I want you to see this in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse number 3, because this is definitely in reference of the pre-existent, the pre-incarnate Christ. In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse number 3. Now, this was a, a description of Melchizedek, but look at it. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest 
continually. And that's what John is experiencing here, Jesus in his priestly mode. And Jesus, the Lord here now in this, when he is saying, I am the first and the last, he is saying that I am God in the flesh. He is saying that he alone was God. There, there was no other, God wasn't created. Somebody asked me a long time ago, where did God come from? Who in the world can explain that? God has always been. All right, let's move on. Let's pick up speed a little bit here and look at verse number 18. Jesus is still speaking. He said, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Now, Jesus is declaring to John that he will never, ever die again. And that's so true. He will never, ever be crucified again. He was the one who has immortality. He was the pre-existent one, the pre-incarnate one. And I want to give you three verses. We'll speed through these real quickly here. In John 1, 4, the word says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 14, 6, the word says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse number 16, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. All right, there's something interesting here when Jesus says to John, he is saying this. He said, I'm alive forevermore. He said, I have the keys. Look at this. I have the keys of hell and death. The couple of scriptures I want to give you that pertains to this phrase in this verse. Acts chapter 2 and verse number 24. Let me give this to you. Look at this. This is talking about Jesus who conquered hell, death, and the grave on the cross, who defeated sin, who defeated the devil. But here in Acts chapter 2, 24, it testifies of what God has done, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. It was impossible that death would keep an eternal grip on the Lord Jesus. Now, I want to show you something about this keys of hell and death thing. In Philippians chapter 2, look there with me, beginning in verse 9. I'll read for you verse 9 through 11. And this is very interesting. It's another study all in itself, and I don't have time to go down that road this evening. But look at the scripture. We're, we're very familiar with this passage. Wherefore God hath also also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of the things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now let me ask you a question. Is that verse just addressing the believer? Absolutely not. Let's go back to verse 9. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Verse 10. 
that at the name of Jesus, look at this, not some knees, not most knees, not a lot of knees, but at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth, and look at this, and things under the earth. So what people do not acknowledge in this life who continuously say no to the wooing and the beckoning of the Holy Spirit. They can, they can put salvation off, and the scripture says today is the day of salvation. They can put off their opportunities to be saved. They can refuse to acknowledge who Jesus is. And we all know that without him, they will die and go to hell. And there's no turning back. That's where they will spend forever and ever. But here's the thing. People can refuse to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord in this life, that he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that he is the Prince of peace, that he is the only begotten Son of God, that he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. People in this life can refuse to acknowledge that all day long from now until eternity, but they will not be able to escape that recognition in the next life. Because according to the word of God, every knee will bow and acknowledge him. You think about that. Now, there's something else here, and time is gone already again, but I want you to see this. The scripture says, Jesus is speaking, and I have the keys of hell and death. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but God calls death an enemy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 26, I want you to look at the scripture, and we'll have to finish with this tonight. God calls death an enemy. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So God calls it an enemy. And here is the thing. As the scripture says that all of us have an appointment, once to die and after that the judgment. God knows when, where, and how each one of us will face this enemy. He knows that. We don't know, but he knows. That is known to God. But what we do know is this, that when this enemy afflicts us, should it be prior to the rapture, this is the consolation that you and I have as a believer. Two scriptures and we're done. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 8. We are confident, I say, Paul is giving a very firm affirmation. He said, we're confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. As a believer in Christ, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. When we are in Christ and we are saved, born again, and none of us are born, born again. None of us can work our way into be born again. That's why Paul said this, in fact, if we could pause this scripture, I want to give two more. Fellas, can you find Romans 10, 13 for me real quick? 
Now, I know I didn't have that on the, on the list tonight, but I, but I want to make a point here in Romans 10, 13. Look at this. Nobody is born a believer. No one is born a Christian. No, none of us can work our way into heaven. The answer is this. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, a baby cannot do that. Are you with me? A baby cannot do what this verse says. And according to this verse, what Paul is writing, this is a way, this is the way a person is born again. So a person has to be in their right mind. They have to be accountable. They have to understand the wages of sin. But this is the means and the method. It has nothing to do with our works. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I don't care what people are trusting in, what they're believing in, what, what, the, what, they're, what they're doing or what they have done in the name of religion. None of that stuff does this. A person has to do this. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All right. Five after. All right. Two. Oh, let me give you one more. I gave you the scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 8. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. One final verse of confidence is Philippians 121, and you know this well. Look at this. Paul writes again. He says, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So he is saying this, whether in the body or out of the body, if, if I die, if that enemy, the last enemy, which is death, takes me before the rapture, Paul is saying, this is a wonderful place. In fact, he said in another passage of scripture, I'm in a straight betwixt the two. But he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I, Brother Richard told me this right before he died. He's sitting out here in the vestibule. And he said this, if God heals me, wonderful. If God decides to take me home, wonderful. He said, I'm a winner either way. Isn't that precious? I'm a winner either way. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain, that's, that's what it translates into. You listen to Pastor Tony Cahoot. For more information, visit our website at bufordroadbaptistchurch.com.